Hey, welcome to A Little Better. My name is Daniel and I'll be your host. This week we dive into your questions that you sent in about the book of Revelation. Just remember that we're still taking questions. If you want to visit iwant.info, you can do that as long as you're listening as we're releasing. Remember our goal on this podcast is to know Jesus better and by the power of his spirit, do better so together we can be a little better. Hey, welcome to the Little Better Podcast. We're getting ready to actually dive into the Revelation questions. We haven't got a ton of questions yet. You can still send them in, but we've got great quality. Absolutely. Great quality questions. And we even upgraded the quality of the members on the podcast. Word. And so Drew's Drew's not here. He's taking a little vacation (laughs) this week. But we have Miss Val Horn who helped us research the series and uh, sat in on all the writing meetings uh, for us to write the series on Revelation. You'd be much worse off if you were only depending on me for answers. I am so grateful Val is here. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, Val, tell us a little bit about yourself. How long you've been coming to Northridge, and a little about your family. Um, I've been coming to Northridge for almost ten years, as long as my grandson Eli has been alive because nice. I came here f- just for him. Hey, that's awesome. That's incredible. <laughs> and you, so uh, tell us, you have how many kids and grandkids? And I have two daughters, one Erin, oh. who's here mm-hmm. and she's a physician in Irondequoit and she's married to Ben, who you mm-hmm. see sometimes on the that's praise right. team. Yeah. And um, they have Elijah, who's nine, and Abby, who's seven, and Gracie, who's four and a half. Nice. Mm-hmm. And you have one other... Uh, and I have another daughter, daughter who... That we can't talk like, immense detail about, and you'll tell us about yes, that. Yes, she's, um, she's in the Indian Ocean as a covert missionary. <laughs> um, she teaches English as a second language, and her husband's a Bible translator, and they nice. have three kids there. Nice. That's incredible. Well, we're glad that you're joining us today on the podcast. Let's dive into some questions. Okay, so this first question, I'm going to preface it a little bit so and translate while I'm reading uh, as I'm doing it. So Drew said that parts of Revelation are figurative and or metaphorical, and there's other times that it's literal. How do we know when it's doing each one, uh, but not only Revelation, but the whole Bible? You know, there's times in the Bible where it seems like is this supposed to be read symbolically? And there's times where it's like, oh, this is really literal. So how do I distinguish between the two? Brad? I lean on common sense, but that's totally insufficient. I would like to hear a far... I, I want to be better. I want to be a little better going forward by getting some, uh, some great insight. I know Val has thought about it. Oh, I think Brad wants to answer more. I don't want to. No, I, I know we joke around, but... Uh, when you say common sense, what do you mean by common sense? So I, uh, what I mean by common sense is if I'm reading about mounting up like wings of eagles or something like that, I'm not expecting the power to fly you mm. know, as a believer. I know that something's being expressed poetically or metaphorically about you know, what we experience in our relationship mm. with God. So, I mean, I think there's some, you know, images, you know, in Revelation that to me are, I wouldn't expect to, you know, literally see a beast, you know, there, there, there's, there's some things. So in that sense, I think there's some common sense, you know, about what's literal and what's, but I, but I, I want to think a little more helpfully, intentionally about yeah. it. But. Val and I have talked about this, I don't know if quite extensively is the right way to say this, but I'll ask you this question that, 
then we'll elaborate because I know your answer is a one-word answer, all right? So should we read Revelation symbolically or literally? Yes. Okay, now what do you mean by that? <laughs> okay. Um, first, first, I just want to say that uh, there's a lot of debate about the whole Bible. Should yeah. we take the Bible literally or should we take it figuratively? Mm-hmm. And I think a better answer is we should take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Revelation is, Drew talked about it last week, that um, Revelation is written in basically three different genres. Yeah. So um, when it's, it's an apocalypse... So it's written with imagery. It's a heaven's eye view on Mm -hmm. earthly events. It's also prophecy. And Mm. if we know anything about prophecy, it's foretelling of future events. It's foretelling. Usually those messages are um, things about repentance and things like that. But they, they have patterns of the past with foreshadows of the future and lots of times those will have things that have symbolic type things about them and and but also we need to take though that doesn't mean they're not true mm-hmm. even yeah. if they're symbolic they're yeah. still we were they're still we true. were ta- we were talking about this very thing in our community group and um th- this question kind of came up or a version of this question and uh, I jokingly said, I think Revelation is literally symbolic or symbolically literal. Yeah. And they're like, what? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've talked about this extensively, but I think we can answer yes confidently because it, it, there is a literalness to it. Like this past weekend, uh, I taught on the passage where Jesus is said to have hair like snow and wool, eyes like fire, uh, feet like bronze in a furnace, mm-hmm. you know, a... a words or a tongue like a sword and it the question is is like well is that symbolic well yes i don't think his eyes were literally fire Mm -hmm. but they were so captivating that it was almost like fire Mm -hmm. you know to john his eyes were so captivating in that regard and his hair was just so brilliant it was almost pure as snow Mm -hmm. full full of wisdom so there's literal hair there it's not that it's just symbolic mm-hmm. but there's all also it is symbolically representative of something else. so it's yes and you know mm-hmm. the the question came up and it'll probably come up like what is the beast mm-hmm. you know it's like somebody was like well maybe it's a hippo and <laughs> and I'm, i was like I don't know if that's the point, guys. Like, I don't know if the point is to figure out if it's a crocodile or a hippo. Like, I don't think that's the point in the book. And mm-hmm. and there's all portions of, I love your language, Val, of taking the Bible seriously, or another way to present it is as it presents itself, you know? Mm-hmm. We interpret the Bible as it presents itself to us. It's mm-hmm. literature, and it there's some things that hamstring literature the fact that they're just words you know mm-hmm. think about you know you a book versus a movie and what you're able to do with the book that you're not able to do with the movie but there are certain things you're able to do with the movie that you're not able to do with the book and so it and that's where it gets difficult and you get some really wonky translations or interpretations of revelation because people are just trying to we need to just interpret it literally or just interpret it symbolically. Mm-hmm. And that just hamstrings what is apocalyptic literature, what is even the Bible, and you know, putting ourselves just in this one little box and doing everything. I think Val's term of taking it seriously 
reading mm-hmm. through it is is really um, really helpful in that. And another the the next question will help us piggyback off of this question, which is the numbers, the numbers in Revelation. Mm-hmm. What do we do with all those numbers specifically? The number seven. There's sevens all over the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, seven church, seven churches, seven spirits of God, seven seals of judgment, seven bowls of wrath, seven trumpets, mm-hmm. and there's more sevens. But seven messengers, seven mm-hmm. lampstands. Like, there's tons of seven. If you do a quick Bible word study on the number seven, it's just like you just keep scrolling. You keep finding sevens in Revelation. Um, what do we do with those numbers? And what is seven? Yeah, I mean, it's always helped to pair it with the bookend like we've been doing, Revelation with Genesis, because we have seven in Genesis as well. You know, we kicked off with seven days of creation, but that seven, I guess we've heard it's a a number of fulfillment or completion, so Mm -hmm. pretty appropriate for it to show up in Revelation. Daniel, you'll be talking about that this week, (laughs) right? With the the lampstands, but it's a a number of perfection in the Bible. It's symbolic all the way through the Bible. Perfection, completion. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so you see it all the way through Revelation. Revelation is the book that completes the Bible. So mm-hmm. seven yeah. will be a number that will come up. But the Bible does use seven mm-hmm. symbolically, but yeah. it also is literal. literal. <laughs> there are seven <laughs> angels, and mm-hmm. there really are seven angels yeah, right. that appear. So, yeah. yes. I think mm-hmm. the line that I used, which it's not super relevant that, you need to watch the sermon, but it's good to pair this all together, mm-hmm. right? We're putting all the troops together with our reading plan, the, these questions on the podcast, and our sermon series. But I think I say something to the iteration of, you know, there are literal seven angels, there's literal seven churches, but the fact that there's seven is significant symbolically because I think it represents the fullness of God's messengers are right. present, the fullness of the company mm-hmm. of angels are present, and the fullness of God's people. You know, there, there are seven specific churches, but... There's a reason that there's seven, you know? Mm-hmm. There, there's a reason that there's the number of completion or fullness is used to think about churches. Right. You know, it's, oh, the fullness of God's people. And so... Um, a lot of other numbers, too. I'm sure it'd be a rich study. We're not going to impact yeah. the, the number 40, you know, just all over the place. Uh, 144,000. 12 uh, times 12. 12 times 12. <laughs> 10, 12 is there all the time. 12 <laughs> tribes, 12 disciples, you yeah. know, 24 seats in Revelation, probably for the... Just the tribes and the disciples. Yeah, so it's like, wait. Yeah. Right. Is 12 literal or yeah. is 12 symbolic? Well, yes. Both. Yes. 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 We said, we said yes. yes. I'm sorry. The right answer is yes. Yes. That's the answer. We got it. That's we got it. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, thinking about the book of Revelation as the last book in the Bible, the capstone or the close of the canon um, of Scripture in the New Testament uh, this question gets uh, sent into us. Someone told me that the book of Revelation almost didn't make it in the Bible. Um, and then, you know, in parentheses, they, they put, almost wasn't, it was, wasn't agreed upon to be in the canon. Therefore, the question I have, should we take it so serious? Is it true that the book of Revelation wasn't almost accepted as a part of the New Testament? And then, therefore, if it is true, how seriously should we take it? I think, that liberal scholarship is starting to bring this up now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's that that they're coming up with this thing that it was maybe it just squeaked its way into mm-hmm. the New Testament. But I don't think that's true if we look back to the original church fathers. It yeah. isn't, is it, Daniel? Yeah. No, and there's a good article that we'll actually link in the show notes that's pretty concise and accessible to Very helpful. Uh, people. Uh, Michael J. Kruger, he's like, I would probably call him the guy on 
the canon. And if you if you're not familiar with that word, the canon, it just means the full completion of the books of the New Testament. Um, and he gives a really helpful article that just gives some basic points that I'll blaze through here really quickly. The first one is he said one of the markers of canonicity was that it had it needed to have early acceptance in an outstanding way. So mm-hmm. early after it was written, the people who read that you know had to really accept it out of the gate. And Revelation and every other book that's included in our New Testament had that. You know, mm-hmm. there there's fragments of other letters, and you know, I did minimal study on the other letters that were considered for canonicity mm-hmm. uh, when, while I was in graduate school um, that didn't make the cut. You know, so I actually did a little bit of research, and they do they sound similar, but there's definitely flaws in their theology, and some even written by disciples. You know, the Gospel mm-hmm. of Thomas is is one of those. You know, um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't so, know if how confident that authorship is it's yeah but yeah but there's it's trivial it just gives the surname of gospel thomas but anyways mm-hmm. all i'd say we're talking about the book of relation so it had early acceptance which the book of relation did so when we're talking about objections is this a myth that people are making up they're not making up a myth but these objections didn't surface until a few centuries later mm-hmm. uh, the most conservative scholars would say around the late third early fourth century is when people started you know, objecting to the book of Revelation, and their main objections were really boiled down to twofold. Uh, we were talking about it earlier. Is one is on the millennial reign of Christ, which is in that one ten verse passage in Revelation chapter twenty, or not even ten verses, five or six verses. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one was about John actually being the author mm-hmm. of, um, because another market of canonicity was the the letters had to be directly linked back to an apostle. Um, right, or and so, and a, a close associate, yeah, a close of a, associate of the apostle. Of like apostle. they, they needed to get their info from an apostle. Right, you know, is is it had to be closely related to or from the hand of an apostle. And most of them, I read, dropped their objections. Yeah, pretty they did. readily. They, yeah, because, pretty readily. Yeah, and their basic argument was like, well, we look at the Gospel of John and we look at the Rev- Book of Revelation, even First, Second, Third John. On top of that, this doesn't sound the same. You know, mm-hmm. it. it John is super clear in the gospel, right. and even in his letters, he's super straightforward. But we read Revelation, and it seems weird. Mm-hmm. And my argument, you know, if I'm back in the third, fourth century, is, well, do you think it even would have made it past the guards on Patmos mm-hmm. if he would have wrote it plain? Mm-hmm. You know, if he's he's on a prison island, <laughs> if he writes just the this censorship. straightforward letter yeah. without any censorship of apocalyptic literature, mm-hmm. would would it even make it? Would yeah. it make the cut? Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think so. If I'm a guard, I'm like, no, nah, you ain't right. If he's like, Domitian is a da da da, and he's just like, you know, shots mm-hmm. fired at him, I'm like, oh, rip that thing up, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm not sending that back to the mainland. So yeah, I so like Val mentioned earlier. I mean, a liberal modern scholarship. There can be different motivations. One is, I guess, maybe more higher critical things where you just. I don't like it or it doesn't fit, you know, reject that. And then there's maybe the lower critical efforts where you're saying, well, let's go back and research um, how authentic are the manuscripts, you know, how, how were the church fathers commenting on them? Did they see it? So that's, that's, you know, you know, more down there. So we of course want to, I mean, 
our comfort level isn't a determinant for what is or isn't in Scripture. And it's also important to recognize that when we talk about the, the Bible being put together, we're not saying that the church decided what mm. would be in or out the Bible. Yeah. The church recognized what was divine Scripture. Yeah. And then they, they had these various criteria for it, but they were, they were recognizing what God did. They weren't saying, well, I think this should be or shouldn't be Scripture. This supports our policy. This doesn't support our policy. Yeah. There, there, this is just a slight plug for a fall series that we're planning uh, which is, you know, I don't know what we're going to name it, but it's basically the heart of it is, should you trust your Bible or right. why you can mm-hmm. trust your Bible? And Val's answer would be? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I answered for her. Yes. It's like, so we're, we're, we're taking a short... That is not my answer for every question. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we got a good track record doing yeah. that. So. Uh, yeah, and so there's a, there's a book by... Michael J. Kruger, if you want to dig in more, mm. you know, his his website that is that the, this article is hosted on, if you want to dig into some other articles that he has, mm-hmm. or one that is super helpful uh, is called Canon Revisited. It's a, it's a book where he kind of goes through like, okay, there's four different versions of what scholars say, this is how the canon came together. Mm-hmm. What is the, what is the good and bad parts of each one? And then you know, how do we come out on the other side and say, we can trust these 27 books of our New Testament right alongside the, what is it, 39 books of our Old Testament mm-hmm. and put this together. And we have one book called the Bible that's all pointed to Jesus. And so um, so the answer to answer both parts of this person's question, yes, the book of Revelation was um, speculated on, mm-hmm. but not as seriously as your your question or maybe even your friend who was concerned should be concerned um, mm-hmm. that all the objections were later recanted, um, and this is a trustworthy, faithful capstone of um, our Bible, and so and it should be taken seriously. All right, next question. Um, what number are we up to? Number four. We're on our fourth <laughs> wow, question. Okay. Uh, so, why John? It was a simple question like why did John? Was that the whole question? That's literally the whole question. It literally said, why John? Why John? Why why is John the one that writes this crazy, apocalyptic, prophetic, narrative, epistle, gospel, poetry, poem thing? I mean, I can just say what's obvious to me, and I'm sure Val will have far more richer (laughs) commentary. But um, he was, I mean... Uh, Jesus is, was he Jesus's best friend? I, I would mean, say he was. <laughs> yeah. He says, Jesus he, didn't say BFF, but yeah, John self identified. Remember, yep. I, I feel like I'm self bolstering, but remember the sermon <laughs> I, I taught in the final word series yeah. mm-hmm. on John, you know, his naming himself, Jesus, the, the beloved, beloved disciple, Jesus oh, Jesus beloved, yeah. you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved is not. Uh, self-boastering, it's, you know, authorship, humility. Yeah. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, but he he but was seen at the Last Supper, you know. I feel weird even reading it is is like, uh, it, it says that relaxing at Jesus' side. Yeah. Uh, or I think some translations say reclining on Jesus' bosom. Like, what does that even mean? But like, right. he's, he's laying his head on his shoulder almost yeah. as an image. So one reason is he was a close companion of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, he's got years, you know, close to mm-hmm. him, knows him. And I, I, 
it does kind of shock me the difference, right? Here's his best friend he walked alongside on earth. But then that imagery you described in Revelation of him coming yeah. just in glory and in power. I mean, how jarring, you know, must have that have been yeah. for John, who knew him in the flesh walking right next to him. Yeah. You know, there. Knew him as a, a friend, as a cousin, mm-hmm. as Lord, as knew him in so many capacities. John knew Jesus in so many levels of relationship. And so, so why John? So John was a close companion of Jesus, but he also lived long enough to do this. He, right? he lived long. There's, I think there's a very practical point where John is potentially the only apostle left alive. And I don't know. I can't, I can't say that with like hundred yeah, percent confidence in this mm-hmm. moment, but he is one of the only ones that we know is still alive because most historians and theologians say that Peter, Paul, and Timothy all have been killed pretty recently mm-hmm. in the days ahead, the days that just previously followed that. Um, and so, you know, John's there. He's on Island of Patmos. Another point and is he pastored one of the churches that the letters was going to. He, mm-hmm. he past, he's a pastor at Ephesus for mm. many years. Think about the vacuum. I didn't get to bring this out in the sermon, but... Think about the vacuum of leadership that has happened in the city of Ephesus. Paul wrote letters there, visited on missionary journeys there. Timothy was sent there to be a pastor. John follows on Timothy's heels mm-hmm. as a pastor. And all of them are gone. Yeah. Wow. That, that would be like if we lost every single one of our pastors who normally teach on the teaching team, just gone, just they're gone. Yeah. Every, like, every time you said age 90 in the sermon, I thought about, um, you know, my mother-in-law's husband, my mother-in-law passed, Bob Garnham is 90 years old and is so many friends, you know, are no longer here. Yeah. And, uh, but to be age 90 is to be often yeah. a lonely person. Yeah. And Jesus's mother was entrusted to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he had so many he reasons, had yeah. stories oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what, Things mm-hmm. she stored in her heart about oh, yeah. him mm-hmm. that he would be able to tell, and how he got Jesus at a totally different level. If you compare yeah. John's, I call it chapter one, Revelation is chapter two, but if you read John's gospel compared mm-hmm. to the other gospels, he got Jesus at a totally, mm-hmm. yeah, very different, totally different some level. Scholar, yes, some scholars call John's gospel call him the evangelist. You know, like he's just. He's trying to convince people, you know, like he is who he says he is. He's the Messiah. He's the risen Savior. So, yep. I just think to me, who else would you entrust this to? (laughs) Yeah. Who else than John? All right. Our last question for this episode uh, is this. Um, So, Drew made the point in week one of the sermon series that one of the purposes of Revelation is we have certainty of Christ's triumph. Um, this person says, I feel like this may be just fighting language a little bit and we're all talking about the same thing, but it feels more like we are fighting from the victory of the cross that has already been won because of Jesus' perfect life, death, burial, resurrection, and defeated death. But I suppose it's probably that he's just saying, he being Drew, uh, that Revelation confirms this. Hmm. Is that what Drew's trying to say? Was, Was trying to say by the point of one of the purposes of the book of Revelation is that we have certainty of Christ's triumph. Mm -hmm. We certainly have certainty of Christ's triumph. We live in this world between, this world between the cross and the consummation of history. 
Um, I'm glad that it's that this isn't the end state right now because I still have an awful lot of sinful desires. Mm-hmm. I have an awful lot of grieving of God that I do. Right, I'm looking forward to the day when I have a, a heart that can't even sin. Right, yeah. uh, you know, you know, in heaven. But um, yeah. you want to fact check me on this? Is it NT Lad theology? Of the New Testament talks about yeah. already but not yet. Yeah. So, and there, there's like a few language that you could use: already but not yet, or the culmination of the kingdom, mm-hmm. or you know, but you know, the return of Christ, part one. You know, the Lord's day, like because Jesus on on the earth, his death, burial, resurrection was, you know, the coming of the kingdom. But he also promised. I'm coming again. Mm-hmm. And so it, there is this already, but not yet. So yes, we have victory in Jesus, mm-hmm. but you know, there's almost this part of me when I, when I read like this, a beautiful part of the gospels and the book of Acts and I'm like, but there's still a lot of evil in the world. Yeah. So when you get to revelation, there's like, we're taking, Jesus is like, I'm going to take care of the rest of that. <laughs> right. And so. Jesus did have victory on the cross, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. But Satan, though a defeated foe, still rages like a roaring lion, seeking yeah. whom he may devour, the Bible says. Mm-hmm. He's still an, the accuser mm-hmm. of the brethren. Yeah. Thankfully, mm-hmm. we have an advocate. Yeah. Jesus, but. He just continues to rage. He continues to deceive the nations mm-hmm. until finally, and this is the good part of Revelation, right? Mm-hmm. Until finally, he's decisively thrown into the lake of fire. And mm-hmm. we'll be hearing about that at the yeah. end of Revelation. So Christ came the first time, right, yeah. as a suffering servant, mm-hmm. but he still is going to come a second time and have this final decisive victory mm-hmm. over well, Satan. And yeah. Yeah. the and enemy is it. destroyed forever. And that part is still future. and Future, I, I, but certain. Yeah. And I don't know a better way to end the podcast than future, but certain. Christ mm-hmm. is going to come and win in the end. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of A Little Better. Remember, you can still submit your questions, and there's multiple ways to do that. Visit iwant.info. It's the easiest way to find a way to submit a question. We'll see you again next week.